be another one. I don't see any up here. Thank you. Hey, honey, how you doing? Good. Good, good, good. Genesis 31, 1 to 21. 1 to 21. It's right in the bulletin. Matthew 24, 15 to 25. That was the other week.
Good morning. Well, that's better. Let's go over a few announcements, if we may. Number one through three, we've been over that at infinitum. Uh, offering envelopes have arrived, uh, so sign up in the foyer to get them. After the morning worship, we will have a 10-minute break. And as you can see, our elements are here for the communion uh, service. And we, of course, will not have an evening service tonight. Uh, one further announcement that we do have is the Clayton's are home this day and for a few more because Doug is with COVID again. So it's uh, he doesn't think it's the Delta variant. He thinks it's the, uh, the Omicron and only God knows how many more will be coming down the pipe. But uh, pray for his uh, speedy recovery on that and uh, he gets restored back to us. Uh, do we have any other announcements uh, that we need to be made aware of? Uh, anybody? Nothing? Everything is right with the world otherwise? Okay. Keep her in our prayers as well. And it's 1044 in the morning, so I think uh, it would be incumbent upon us to try and get here before 1030. Because we have streaming that has to go out, and people are expecting to see it at 10.30. And when they don't see it, they turn it off. So hopefully that's an encouragement to all of us to get here so we can begin promptly. Okay. Scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Verses 15 through 25 in the Pew Bible, it would be page 
you join us by standing with us for opening prayer? Brother Ed Riffle, may I prevail upon you to lead us in opening prayer. Take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 78. Number 78 in the red. 78. Dr. Ed, you're the first hand I saw. 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 31. And it's verses 1 through 21. That'll be page 49 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us as we begin the reading. Laban had gone 
rather, when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all that he had and crossed the river. He headed for the hill country of Gilead. May God bless his word. Amen. Thank you, brother. Please remain standing. Take your brown hymnal this time and turn to number 201, 201 in the brown.
Our text this morning is from Genesis 31. Last Lord's Day we studied how Jacob, as an endangered servant to his uncle Laban, wanted to leave Laban and return to his own country. But Laban cut him a deal to stay and manage his flocks, in which his wages would be all those lambs or kid goats, born that were speckled or spotted or dark in color, those would become Jacob's wages. Jacob agreed. Laban agreed, but then he commissioned his own sons, get this, to remove all those marked animals to a location some three days' journey away from Jacob. With the intent that Laban's flock would only produce white animals. These guys aren't scientists. They don't know anything about procreation and so on. But superstitiously, Jacob concocted a scheme using tree branches with the bark strip to appear speckled and spotted, which he placed near the watering troughs when the strong livestock was ready to meet, mate, excuse me, and their offspring would then be speckled and spotted. But you know there's no scientific evidence for any of that. But God overrode Jacob's superstitious ploy, and God caused the livestock to, in fact, bear speckled and spotted offspring, which were going to be Jacob's wages. The result was, Jacob became very wealthy. And Laban's livestock became weak and lackluster in wool production, while Jacob's livestock were strong, healthy, and productive of premium wool. That made him rich. We consider the appropriate spiritual application. Now today's account looks at Jacob's flight from Laban. And in this text we discover the treachery of Laban as an employer over Jacob. Coming to this text we ask for the Lord's blessing. Father we thank you and praise you that the word of God tells us about the bad stuff as well as the good stuff. Because we need to understand the wickedness of a human heart and why we need to seek forgiveness in Christ and why only the blood of Christ can wash away sins that are of human nature. We are what we are what we are. But Lord, you make us new in Christ and you grant us to have a new nature so that the old doesn't have rule and authority over us anymore. Though we continue to still sin... We are forgiven and we learn, Lord, to live more righteous lives than before. So bless our studies. We look at Jacob. He's doing some things here that seem to us very strange. But he thought they were all going to work. And he is not yet understanding how God works in a person's life. But he will understand. 
we may be in somewhat that category as well. Trying this or that to appease God and receive his blessing. When the one that only can appease God is you yourself, Lord Jesus, because of your perfect life and your perfect atonement for sin. Bless our study and give us hope and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Our text today deals with Jacob's flight from Laban, his father-in-law. And the reason for this is that trouble was brewing for Jacob as Laban's employee. As we have witnessed before, jealousy again raised its ugly head to cause dissension and unrest in Laban's household. This time it was Laban's sons complaining, verse 1, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. In Hebrew, there are many, as many as five moods or voices when writing about the verbs. Five that can apply to any given verb. So when we read the accusation against Jacob made by Laban's sons, Jacob has taken everything our father owned. We have five Hebrew ways in which the word taken can be viewed now I know you're not interested in the Hebrew language and and all of that but some of this is important one voice the Nifal voice means captured or removed but that doesn't fit Jacob didn't capture anything Pual is another voice to be captured to be removed to be stolen Well, that might work, but then Jacob would be viewed of stealing Laban's sheep. That doesn't fit. He didn't steal anything. A third voice, Hophal, to be taken to or brought to. That's the idea of transporting the sheep from one location to another. That, again, doesn't fit the context. The third voice, Hephel, to take hold of oneself. That doesn't fit at all. Finally, number five, Kai, K-A-I, Cal, excuse me, K-A-L. That's the one we have in our text. And it means to procure or take possession of. That fits. Laban's sons were not accusing Jacob of stealing their father's livestock. They knew better than that. I mean, if there had been any foul play, it was these men who, on instruction of their father Laban, had screened out the spotted and speckled lambs from the flock, which were Jacob's wages, And they hid them a three days journey out in the wilderness somewhere where Jacob would not be privy to their uh, location and would not be able to observe their offspring. Chapter 30, verse 36. So, the accusation by Laban's sons is not an accusation, 
Rather, it is simply a statement of fact. Verse 1. Jacob has procured everything our father owned and has gained all his wealth from what belonged to our father. This was true. This is true. You recall that when Jacob arrived in Haran, he was fleeing from the murderous intent of his brother Esau. He fled Beersheba with but the clothes on his back and with not so much as even a box lunch to eat. Remember his prayer request for God's provision. You'll find it in Genesis 28, verse 20. Note, however, that in stating the obvious, Laban's sons use hyperbole. Now, hyperbole is an unreal exaggeration to emphasize the real situation. So this is a little bit of English, a little bit of of Hebrew that you're getting this morning. They use hyperbole to exaggerate. What was the unreal exaggeration by made by Laban's sons. Here it is. I'll read it for you. Jacob has taken everything our father owned. Oh boy. Or again, he's gained all his wealth from what belonged to our father. Hyperbole. Everything our father owned? Well, that would mean that Laban was left penniless because of Jacob, which obviously was not true. Gained all his wealth from what belonged to our father? That's not true either, since Jacob only received what was promised him as his own wages. So what gain Jacob accomplished came his way from his hard work, his wages, and the Lord's blessings, so that we can say with regard to Laban and Jacob that Jacob earned his wealth. He earned it. (laughs) Just think about this. How silly it would be, downright false, to say to an employee working in the auto industry and receiving his pay on Friday... Well, your salary is something that belongs to Ford or GM or Chrysler. No, that's not an accurate statement. Did he not work 40 or 50 hours for a certain hourly rate agreed upon in a union contract? If yes, then when those wages do come, they do not belong to the auto industry or the manufacturer. They belong to the employee who put in the required hours of working on the assembly line building automobiles. Why then would Laban's sons make these statements about Jacob? Well, they are looking for justification to besmear Jacob's position on the ranch with a view of getting rid of him. And verse 2 tells us that it worked. Let me read it for you. Jacob noticed 
that Laban's attitude towards him was not what it had been. In other words, the impact of Laban's sons and their evaluation of Jacob's wealth caused Laban to turn against Jacob. When before his assessment of Jacob, let me read it for you, verse 27, I have learned, said Laban, that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Totally different, so different. It's a 180 degree flip that this man is doing. It's a good indication that for Jacob. Hey Jacob, it's time for you to move on. <laughs> move on. How does a person, how does an employee know when it is time to move on and search for another means of employment? Well, the world's answer to that question, more often than not, centers around money. If a new job offer comes along in which a person is likely to make $10,000 more a year, for most, that is the deciding factor. They will reason, well, you know, I would be a fool to turn this down. Of course, my answer is going to be, sign me up. Ten grand more a year, wow. And maybe little or no thought will be given to uprooting the family, settling into a new community, into new schools, into a new church. Maybe a society with new societal norms. Maybe even new and disconcerting moral ethics in the new company which cares more for the bottom line than the mental and spiritual well-being of its employees. There's more to consider than money. Now for Jacob, making more money was not a factor. We know this because the Bible says of him, let me read it, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and men servants and camels and donkeys. Like Isaac, his father, and Abraham, his grandfather, Jacob was not hurting for money. The man was wealthy. The jealousy bug bites us at times and we lament. Hmm. Made, I, I wish I had made servants and men servants and camels and donkeys. In fact, do you know that you do? You do. You just don't recognize it. Right now, your household is furnished with many servants. Dishwashers, clothes washers, clothes dryers, toasters, ranges, ovens, refrigerators, TVs, stereos, and more. And the list goes on and on. All serving you in the capacity of Jacob's maidservants and men servants. And the only food you have to feed these servants in your house is a modest electric or gas bill per month. Oh, maybe an occasional replacement of a bad part or when it dies then you have to get a whole new appliance 
But you'll have years and years and years of those servants serving you. And for transportation, there are cars and trucks and boats and snowmobiles and ATVs that serve you in place of camels and donkeys. And the only general maintenance required of you is an oil change, an occasional new auto part, gasoline to feed them. So how did Jacob come to the conclusion that it was time to leave Laban's employment and move on? Well, the answer was the intervention of God. And there were two aspects to God's intervention. Number one, the providence of God. Providence means God's orchestration of the events of life in such a way as to indicate the direction that we are to take. I remember when Dr. Ben Carson was asked by a reporter one evening after the New Hampshire primary if he intended to continue on to the South Carolina primary. Or was he going to drop out of the Republican race for the presidency? This was his answer. When I began this race, I told the Lord, any door you open for me, I will walk through until it comes to the place where you shut the door. That, brethren, was an appeal to God's providence. God working the circumstances in such a way as to signal, yes, proceed, or no, it's not time for you. It's now time for you to call it quits. In Jacob's case, what were the indicators of God's providence assuring Jacob that it was time for him to, you know, move on? Two, number one, the radical distortion of Laban's sons that Jacob became rich by acquiring their father's wealth. Chapter 31, verse 1. Well, we know why you're rich. You, you've gotten our father's wealth. And secondly, the notable difference and negative way that Laban, his father-in-law, looked upon him, indicating there was tension and hostility where before there was peace and harmony. Observe that Jacob had concrete evidence of Laban's change of heart towards him. He summoned his wives, Rachel and Leah, and told them, You know, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. You see, Laban played this game. The game was this. Jacob, your wages will be the speckled offspring of the sheep. 
Okay, but when the flocks produce more speckled than anything else, Laban would recant, saying, You know, I think your wages should be the spotted. But that didn't satisfy Laban either, because God saw to it that the ewes would birth only spotted offspring. Verse 9 reads, So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me, says Jacob to the daughters. That said, the jealousy of Laban's sons and the cheating by Laban's constant switching of Jacob's wages were providential indicators. Hey, it's time for you, Jacob, to move on. This isn't going to improve. You need to get out, get on with your life. So that was the first indicator about moving on. The second aspect of God's intervention was more definitive. You know, providence is not always easy to read because we can read it wrong. And so while Jacob surmises that things were not going very well in Laban's employ. He needed, uh, he just needed something more than negative circumstances tugging him to make a change. What he, what he needed was a specific word or command from God. And God gave it to him. Verse 3. The Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers to your relatives and I will be with you oh here it was here was the word from God an actual command from God as to how to proceed and it doesn't get more concrete than that go back home and this happened twice with Jacob as he continues to discuss with his wives the reasoning behind his intention to leave Laban He reiterates a dream that he had from God when the sheep were reproducing speckled and spotted. And God answered him, verse 12 and following, I have seen all that Laban had been doing to you. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Brethren, it doesn't get much more concrete than that. Providence, yes, But more than that, a word from God. And that is our key. You always test providence by the word of God. Because sometimes providence seems seems to smile on what we want to do. And we say, oh good. The doors are opening. All I got to do is walk through. One night the window was opened. And David looked across the courtyard and he saw a woman bathing by Bathsheba, or her name. And she was beautiful to look at and sensuous. And David thought, How providential. Wow, this woman is a looker. 
And he sent for her. And he took her. And when he found out that she was already married, he arranged to have Uriah, her husband, killed in battle. Oh, Providence was smiling on this whole decision of mine. Oh, yeah, but the word of God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. The word of God outvoices anything you see in Providence. And Providence must be tested by the word of God. You see something and it says, Well, that looks like God wants me to go that way. Well, you better test that concerning the way you intend to go. This happened twice with Jacob. She continued to discuss with his wives the reasoning behind his intention to leave Laban. He relates a dream that he had from God when the sheep were reproducing the very kid, goats, and so on that were to be his wages. And God came to him with a word from God, not just providence, but a word from God. And he said, I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. Now, leave the land at once and go back to your native land. There was the word of God he needed. Well, that's all well and good, but you know we're talking about two daughters here, Laban's daughters, Rachel and Leah. This was their father, which was being discussed. Laban. And Jacob was accusing Laban, their father, of cheating him. How would they react? Would they defend their father's actions? Would they resent Jacob for daring to accuse their father of being a cheat? You know, in general, daughters are very loyal to their fathers. Very supportive. Very amiable. They look towards their fathers for counsel and support. But I say, to their credit, to the credit of the daughters... Both Rachel and Leah gave an honest assessment of their father, saying, verse 14, <laughs> Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father that it would be in Jacob's wages, you understand. Which vast livestock. All that wealth belongs to us and our children, they say. So, Jacob, do whatever God has told you. 
This is the daughter's. Do whatever God has told you. In short, Jacob, we have no inheritance here. God has spent whatever was to be ours. It has gone. Our inheritance has gone to dad and he's blown it. There's no reason for us to stay. Dad treats us like foreigners. So husband, we're with you. And we're with you 100%. And with that voice of confidence, Jacob packed up all of his children, all of his goods, all of his livestock, and he added out for Canaan, verse 18. He was assured not to tell Laban his plans, verse 20, not being aware that in this exodus, Rachel had confiscated Laban's household gods, verse 29, or verse 19, which she may have thought would bring them good fortune. So wait a minute, I thought these were believers in Jehovah. Well, not yet. And not always functioning that way. They brought, were brought up in a pagan environment. They have to work through what it means to be a child of Abraham and child of Isaac. With that voice of confidence, Jacob picked up all his children, his goods, his livestock, and he headed for the promised land. Now, all the pieces for success fell in due place. Providence showed Jacob that he was resented and had no longer welcome a welcome mat at Uncle Laban's house. His wife honored his decision and supported the return to Canaan. And number three, most important of all, Jacob had received a sure word from God actually commanding him to return to Canaan. So three indicators. Bing, bing, bing. Solomon writes, though one may be overpowered, two, two can defend themselves, but a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12. You can't just brush this all away. Boom, boom, boom. God is functioning. Now there are some spiritual lessons for us to learn from Jacob's flight. Number one, when people intend to belittle you or slander you, they are not above exaggeration to make their case. I'm sure you know this. Laban's adult sons, who were caretakers of their father's livestock, exaggerated Jacob's role in Laban's reduced affluence, saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all his wealth from what belonged to our father. Now that's plausibly true, plausibly, because Jacob's livestock outproduced Laban's 
But it was patently false because it was God's compensating Jacob for his father-in-law's cheating by changing Jacob's wages ten times in an attempt to secure for himself all the livestock and keep Jacob poor and beholding to him. There's enough blame in our day on both sides, that of the accuser and that of the defender. You should keep in mind that people exaggerate to give credence to their argument, whether that may be or not. And there is a good illustration of this at Jesus' own trial. In Matthew 26, verse 57, we read, Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas the high priest. The chief priests had the whole Sanhedrin, or council, were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Just look at that phrase. False evidence. False evidence. Well, if it's evidence... How can it be false? You could see what was going on. They looked for it, but they couldn't find any. Though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 26, verse 59 and following. Now the charge was, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The original account in John 2, verse 19 said, nothing about Jesus asserting that he had the power to destroy Herod's temple and rebuild what had taken 40 years to complete. The accusers made that up. Though you know that as God, and with the power of heaven and earth behind him, Jesus could have done that very thing. But that wasn't the point, Matthew 28, 19. John informs us what Jesus meant. John writes, The temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. John 2, verse 21 22. That he would be raised on the third day you're talking about the temple of his body and he's talking about raising the temple in three days that did occur the temple of his body 
The charge made by these false witnesses was designed to belittle and to slander Jesus and his claim to be the Son of God. It was to make him look ridiculous by stating the absurd. How could a man by himself destroy Jerusalem's worship center and then rebuild it in the space of but three days? It was a preposterous exaggeration to make Jesus appear impotent and foolish, delusional, a nutcase. Slander often takes this cruel road. Peter wrote, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 1 Peter 3, 15 and following. Slander means to be falsely accused. Why? Well, to discredit the other person or to minimize or negate their influence. Laban's sons tried to put the blame on Jacob for their disintegration of the size, the wealth of Laban's livestock. When in fact, both the strength of Jacob's holdings and the depletion of Laban's holdings was due to God thwarting the wicked way that Laban was treating his son-in-law you know, moving the sheep away, three days away, so he couldn't see what was going on. God used exaggeration to shore up their position. So the rule comes, don't embellish, just stick to the facts. Stick to the facts. Secondly, God watches over the economic issues of life and the just cause, the just cause, of created, of cheated rather, laborers. You know, Jesus addresses this. The wealthy farmers, excuse me, James does this. It's in James' account. The wealthy farmers of his congregation saying, Now listen, you rich people. James is talking. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's going to come upon you. Your wealth has rotted. And moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. How so? You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Okay, what constituted this hoarded wealth? Look, he says, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. James 5, 1 and following. So these land barons 
were getting rich. How? Not by producing bigger and better crops. No. They became fat cats by withholding, cheating the farmhands of their due wages. God saw it all, and he condemned them for it. There's another side to this truth, not from the side of the wealthy refusing to pay their workers, but from the side of the workers who become resentful, greedy, towards the land owner. It's a two-way street. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells the account of a vineyard owner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Those hired agreed to be paid one denarius, which was the going rate for a day's work. The landowner went out again at 9 a.m., again at noon, again at 3 p.m., and finally at 5 p.m. 5 p.m. was the end of the workday. Each time he found late stragglers whose explanation for not working was that no one had hired them. Well, we've worked, but no one hired us. All these were then hired and sent into the vineyard to work. At the end of the day, the foreman was instructed, pay the vineyard workers beginning with the last hired and go on up to the first hired. Matthew 20, verse 10 and following. So, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received one denarius. This caused them to complain to the landowner. Hey, these men you hired last only work one hour. And you have paid them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. So what they are saying is, you have treated us unfairly. That's unfair. So the landowner responded, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous. So the last will be first. And the first last. These workers were consumed with greed and jealousy when they saw that the latecomers were paid as much as they. They could not handle, let me put it this way, they could not handle God's grace. Let me say it again. They couldn't handle God's grace. Do you know there's lots of people in our day that's just the same way? God saw it all, and surely as he saw it all, 
the land barons getting fat over withheld wages. The point being that God is watching you, he's watching me, how we relate to money. Paul put it this way, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. We have to watch how we relate to money. You're going to be a big bonfire someday. <laughs> and all the cash at Fort Knox, all the gold and everything, become dust. Thirdly, providence in and of itself is not a sufficient signal to proceed. It has to be proven by God's word. Let me say it again. You say, well, I had a, you know, providence was smiling on the way I should go. Did you test providence by the word of God to see if that was an actual signal from God to go that way? Well, well, he opened the door and shouldn't I walk through the door if he opened the door? Not if it violates the word of God. Providence in and of itself is not a sufficient signal to proceed. It must be proven by God's word. One day Donna and I were going into Cole's department store to shop. And there on the sidewalk in front of the doors lay a man's wallet. I picked it up. I opened it up. Wow. I found it was full of large bills. Hundred dollar bills. And lots of them. I could have reasoned. I could have been tempted. Wow. (laughs) In the providence of God... I was walking along. I was just minding my own business when, voila! There in my pathway, God had placed a wallet full of money. He must want me to have this because I found it, not someone else. Brethren, we can rationalize our way into acting Because providence seems to smile on the action. We use what we know of God's sovereignty over all events to influence our thinking and approve our actions. But in this case, providence was not a green light to keep the wallet, but a test of my fidelity to God. How so? Because in God's word, specific commands are given concerning things that do not belong to you or to me. The most simple and basic is the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. Exodus 20 verse 15. The word steal means 
carry away. Pastor Tucker had his garage door open at his house in Missouri, and there on a bench he had a fine new horse saddle. You know that John was into horses? He was. Well, someone driving by his house saw that saddle because he had his garage door up. So they put their vehicle in reverse, backed into his drive, carried off the saddle before he knew anything about it. They just backed up and stole it. Scripture says, if anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving his neighbor about some thing that's entrusted to him or left in his care or stolen or if he cheats him or if he finds lost property and lies about it or if he swears falsely or if he commits any such sin that people may do when he thus sins and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to him or the lost property he found. Boy, this is getting heavy. Or whatever it was he swore falsely about, he must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it and give it all back to the owner. On the day he presents his guilt offering. Leviticus 6, verse 2 through 5. You didn't know these heavy-duty laws were in the scripture, did you? But they're there. Okay, so what about the wallet? Well, I banged on an unmarked door. It had a peephole in it. This is between the entrance door and then there's a foyer and then there's the inside doors but you go in there at Coles and to the left is a door with a peephole so I knocked on that door a surprise security officer opened the door after I explained what happened and I left the wall for him to return to the owner Now the burden of proof was on the security officer, right? I don't know if he returned it to the owner or not. That's not my concern. I got the wallet to the person who alone could get the money back to the proper man. There's another kind of stealing that occurs every day with American manufacturers. My wife informed me that as she would shop for food, shampoo, other toiletries, she discovered on labels that what was once 12 ounces of food is now 10 ounces. But the price remained the same. 
Who reads labels? <laughs> Donna did. <laughs> and so I looked at the label of my shampoo bottle when I got home. And it read 12 ounces, which before was 16 ounces. But again, same price. We can't do much about this except pay the new price for the product, if you want the product. But here's why such thievery should concern us. I'm reading scripture. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? So they're saying, we can't wait for the Sabbath to end so we can get back to making money. The scripture goes on, skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, even the sweepings with the wheat. Oh boy. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the rivers of Egypt. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Amos 8 verse 4. Why? Because pending judgment is on the way. So my point is this. Providence may seem to be blind to some of these things because nothing immediately happens but God is watching God is recording God is remembering and our our nation suffers the result so the moral of the story is this test providence by the word of God to prove his will just because it looks good it looks like you should go a certain way but you don't have any word from god on that you just have providence you need to look at the word of god and see does the word of god confirm what you think is happening or does it have something different to say and it's the word of god that has precedence over providence because providence can be a test of your faith not a green light to proceed. Our Father, help us to understand the difference. Help us to realize that you are watching. I pray that you will help us be honest people and also people that are ruled by the Word of God, by the Scriptures, not our feelings, not because of circumstances, but the word of God, may it take precedence in all that we do. And if we live that way, you will bless us. You did with Jacob. 
despite Laban's lying, cheating, manipulating of everything that he did, it was Jacob who became wealthy, whose sheep and goats produced the best quality of wool that could be produced in that day and age. And Laban, along with his wicked sons, paid the consequences. Help us to understand that God sees it all. We may think we're getting away with murder when we're not. I pray that you'll help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn, 532, in Trinity. Now we're going to take a 10-minute break after this and regather for the Lord's table. 532. We stand
then we'll take a 10 minute break and regather when you hear the music for our communion service. <clears throat>